like it. Very energetic. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you guys are here. I love seeing it. And we did, you know, the three-minute greeting time. Hang out afterwards, though. Join us for the cookout so that you can get to know some of these faces. I love looking out and seeing just more people gathered together. So I know that there's a lot of you who are like, I didn't know they went to our church. I know that's happening right now. So... So let's do that hangout during the cookout. During the cookout, and Pastor Gabe touched on it, but please walk around, look at all the stuff that we've got, and literally in the whole building. Um, There's a lot of it that is not coming with us. We don't need it to come with us, and some of it just can't because it's too big. Um, Look at it and, and make a claim on it. If there's something you have your eyes on, like, I really have always wanted that, um, almost everything is is up for up for offer. So let us know, but claim it. If there's something you really have on your heart, claim it today, so that it doesn't walk out the door and you're like, oh man, I was hoping for that. And bidding wars are not out of the question. We can totally, but that's up to you. We won't we won't facilitate that. Uh, anyway, do that, but hang out and have a hamburger, even if it's only just for a little bit. Hang out with us a little bit. Just get to know each other, and let's just let's just celebrate who we are as a body, right? Amen. Okay. Hey, uh, welcome out there online. Um, hopefully, I tried to get message out to our friends in Tanzania, Pastor uh, Epaphras out there, and uh, let them know that our service times had changed. And I'm not quite certain with the time zones how that all works. It might be midnight where they're up watching us right now. Um, but I hope they're out there as are other people. And so just welcome to all of you. Let's get into the message because Pastor Gabe went on for about 45 minutes on the, no, (laughs) absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary, but I want to get right into the message. Um, we're back in, uh, back in still in the gospel of Mark. Um, and this is one of those messages where I want to see where God takes it. I've studied it out. I've gone through, uh, made my notes done all the things that I do, um, but I'm still praying about, God, where do, you, where do you want this to end up? So we're going to go together, and we're going to find out where this message ends up, okay? You guys all right with that? Let's just go on this journey together. By the way, if you come to the Wednesday night service, bring your Bible. That'll be a bring your Bible service, because we're going to minimize the scriptures on screen, things like that. It's going to be very just straightforward, okay? So bring your Bibles, and we'll just enjoy that time with the Lord together. All right, so... We're in, again, still in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we taught, it was a difficult teaching for me personally, and I know for some of you, it was a difficult teaching about uh, divorce and adultery. It is something that is just wreaking havoc with, with everyone all over the world, but in some ways, specifically, Christian marriages are under attack because the idea of a marriage covenant is supposed to be a reflection of God's covenant with us, at least kind of the closest example that we should have. And so because of that, the enemy just wants to attack that. He wants to do everything he can to tear that apart and just show the rest of the world, look, Christian marriages are no different than any other marriages. Now, saying that, I want you to hear this. Jesus' teaching on this was not to give us loopholes of why it's okay. Remember the Pharisees and everybody else is looking back and saying, well, in case of adultery and this and that and unfaithfulness and whatever, it's okay. It wasn't meant to give us loopholes to look for and say, okay, because of this and this, we can. It wasn't meant for that. But it also at the same time was not meant to condemn those who are going through it, have been through it, 
anything like that. Because with God, there is always redemption. Amen? Always. The Bible promises us that what the enemy intended for evil, he will use for good. And I see that in my own life. I went through a horrible divorce 20 years ago, and God redeemed that in a way that I could never have imagined. It wasn't my first choice, though. It was hurtful. It was bad. It, it did not glorify God in how that happened, but he's able to redeem it. So I want you to hear that. The point of that message last week was that the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, specifically a couple married together, joined together under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, should be honoring to him, should give God the glory, should be the thing that the rest of the world can look at and say, there's a light, because that's how it's done. But bad things happen in a fallen world. It just happens. And so that's when we rest on God's redemption, okay? But the point is, the point of all that and the challenge that I left you with last week was regardless of what's going on in in your life, divorce, separation, financial problems, health problems, who here does not have a problem of any kind going on in their life? Liar. No. We, yeah, okay, the hand goes down here. We, we all, the point is we all do. We all do. Some are on our scale of problems. Some are a level 10 nuclear problem. Some are small problems, but they're all problems. Here's the thing, though. The challenge was, are we going to let our light shine before the rest of the world as we navigate those problems? As we go through life dealing with the things that come our way and the things that happen to us, the bad choices we make, the choices that are made for us, as we navigate those things, are we going to do it in a way that brings glory to God? Because that's our choice. We can do that. We don't always have a choice of what comes our way, how we handle it. That's our choice. And are we going to do it in a way that glorifies God? So that's where we left off last week. And that is still a challenge today because guess what? If you're not going through something now, you will be tomorrow or the day after, or the day after. And we always have that choice. So this week, as we get into the teaching this week, it's another one, a couple different things going on, but I want you to see how they relate to each other. It's a section of Mark, Mark chapter chapter 10. We're going to do verses 13 to 31. So Mark 10, 13 to 31 is where we are, and and it's two sections. The first one is typically titled, Jesus Blesses the Children. In, in your Bibles, it's usually broken out like that. And then the second kind of subtopic is the rich young ruler. Anybody heard a teaching on either one of those things before? Many of us have, right? <coughs> Excuse me. But they're often taught in isolation. And they both have great messages and great lessons to learn from being taught in isolation. But in fact, they do dovetail together and they do teach the same message. So let's get into it. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus and his disciples, again, they're still, they're up in this area called Perea um, that is kind of to the east of of, uh, Israel. It's kind of a more secular than not, more Gentile than not in that region. But there's still a bunch of 
of Jewish people there. There are still Pharisees that are following Jesus around and challenging him. But that's still kind of the area that they're in as they slowly make their way down towards Jerusalem. So that's where we are when we start here. Mark 10, 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he would touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. Now remember not long ago, the disciples had said, hey, there was a man who was driving out demons in your name, but we stopped him because he wasn't one of us. Remember, Jesus rebukes them and says, come on, if he's doing it in my name, let him do it. The disciples just, they don't get it. They're just like us. They don't get it. They go, okay, well, that was that situation. But in this one, let's keep the kids away from Jesus so he can do his ministry. The disciples rebuked the people that were bringing children to Jesus. Now, the Greek word for children right there, I won't go into it, but it indicates basically toddlers and infants. Okay, this isn't teenagers and things. It's literally toddlers and infants. And that's kind of important because the Hebrew custom at the time would have been, especially if you're kind of well-to-do or prominent, you would bring your children to a rabbi and have that rabbi bless your children. Okay, so this is, this is something that happened all the time. And it was probably a little bit irritating for the Pharisees of the time to see people flocking to Jesus, considering him a rabbi, not only rabbi, but a, but a very important, prominent rabbi in their eyes. Let's bring our children and have him bless them. So that's what's, what's going on here. It's also important to note that these children were probably too young to really declare their faith in Jesus. All they knew... They're children, and they're just doing what children do, just having fun and coming to see this guy, Jesus. There's a couple, again, for you visual uh, people, here's kind of an illustration of sort of what that looked like. And that's the age group of these kids is probably fairly accurate. Again, it wouldn't have been teenagers or anything, but it's probably around this age. And they're all bringing them, flocking to Jesus. I love pulling up these old renaissance and old baroque paintings and stuff like that um they're so carry so much emotion i think mark ten fourteen says but when jesus saw this so when he saw this the this he saw was them rebuking the children or the parents of the children who were bringing when jesus saw this he was indignant and said to them allow the children to come to me do not forbid them for the kingdom of god belongs to such as these these little ones, what he's saying is not necessarily the kingdom of God belongs to these toddlers, these little children. What he's saying is that these little ones had nothing to offer Jesus. They weren't trying to impress him. They weren't trying to gain favor from him. They had really nothing. No great works in their life to boast of, nothing they could point to. They just wanted to be near him. Okay, And the parents wanted their children to be near him. That's the idea. No agenda, nothing like that. Mark 10, 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Again, what he's saying is you don't have to start wearing diapers and drooling on yourself to get into the kingdom of heaven. That is not what he's saying. He's saying you need humility. No, set aside presumptions of status, pride, personal gain, anything that you can gain by that, which went so against the culture of the day. 
The culture of the day was, how can I achieve more prominence so that I can get into heaven? Innocent humility is what he's trying to teach here. Innocent humility. There's one thing to be humble when you know, okay, I, I should be, I know I should be humble. I'm not really, but I should act humble at least externally. These children were literally, they're like, I got nothing. I just want to be near him. That's what he's talking about. Mark 10, 16, and he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I would love to know exactly what he said and how he did it. But just like we see in the rest of Mark, even if Mark knew, he's not going to write that down because then that would be, we'd still be seeing that today in every church blessing we did. We'd be doing it exactly the same way. It's not a formula. Quick side note, when it says to receive the kingdom of God like a child, a lot of people think that means you can't question anything. You can't be skeptical about anything. But who here has children in the two-year-old range, right? The, the number one question they ask is, why? Okay. Now, I don't, notice I didn't say the most common thing they say, which is probably no. But Why? Why this? Why that? Why can't I have it? Why is this like that? Why is that? And I love that. When Jesus says, come in like a child, he's not saying that you can't ask questions. Be inquisitive. Be inquisitive. Be skeptical. Ask for answers. Why? Terry Cooper's doing the apologetics class, and I love that because that's scientists, well-known scientific uh, people in the scientific community that come together and say, look, we can prove to you that the things in Scripture happened. I love that. That's not saying, well, you're being skeptical and you're trying to figure it out and that's wrong. No. We are invited to do that. We're invited to ask questions, invited to learn, and it has nothing to do with a lack of faith. So the, the disciples and everybody, after this little incident with the children, they pack up and they start leaving that area. They're moving to another place, probably farther down towards Jerusalem. But before they can get very far, they're met with a young man who confronts the group as they're walking out. Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is where we get into the rich young ruler part. Now, Mark kind of has an economy of words here. From Matthew, if you read Matthew 19, it's kind of a parallel account. Same with Luke 18. We find out from Matthew that he's young, that this, this man is young, and that he owns a lot of property. Okay, that's, that's Matthew's description of him. From Luke, we find out that he's a ruler, and he's very wealthy. Now, that word ruler doesn't mean he was a king or something like that. The ruler, it translates in the Greek as archon, and it just means a, a leading, could be a leading executive in an organization, or maybe a leader in a body of elders, something like that. He was, he was a man of prominence, not necessarily um, like a princely status, but, but of status of some kind. And since no, typically no Roman citizen is going to address Jesus as master or as teacher or kneel before him we can pretty much assume the man was was a hebrew so probably just inferring here he was probably a man of some prominence in their local synagogue 
Okay, so he was used to feeling important, being important. If he was rich and young and important in his local synagogue, he had probably worked his whole life and worked very hard to reach that status, right? It wasn't common for somebody that young to be that successful. So in his mind, he had a lot of success. And he probably came to Jesus asking this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He probably thought, how big a check do I need to write? Who do I need to give to? Who do I need to impress? That's probably what was going on in his mind. Mark 10, 19, Jesus answers him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And Matthew adds, you shall love your mother and father, or love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew adds that part of it. It sounds like, and some scholars have argued and actually fought over this idea, is Jesus telling this man, when he says, what may I do to inherit eternal life? It almost sounds like Jesus is saying, follow the law. That's not the same path that we're taught by grace alone. And faith in Jesus, we are saved. It almost sounds like he's giving them this, this alternative path that has been debated for centuries. Let's see if we can make sense of it here. We know in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, put it on the screen because I want you to read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you ever want a more clear definition of what, what this is, what salvation is and where it comes from, there, there isn't one. That's it. So following the law then is not a way. So what's going on here? Mark 10, 20, and he said to him, so the, so the rich young ruler then speaks back to Jesus and says, teacher, I've kept all these things since my youth, from my youth. So he was obviously the young man, he was obviously religious, He was obviously sincere, and obviously in his mind, he thought he had been following all the commandments. Now, anytime you say to Jesus, I've kept all the laws perfectly, there might be a problem, right? You might want to keep that statement to yourself. Mark 10, 21, looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Notice that it doesn't say Jesus showed compassion on him, showed mercy on him. It says he showed love to him. When you look at that word and, and you really study it out like I did, it's the kind of love that you would have for someone that you knew was about to make a mistake. He was about to say or do something that was going to be a mistake, and you knew it. But you also knew they were going to do it anyway. It's more, of, it's more of a deep sorrow because you know they're about to say or do something that's going to hurt themselves. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But this man, he was honest. He wasn't perfect, but he was honest in his pursuit of righteousness. He really thought he was adhering to the law and doing the things that he needed to do. But the one thing that he lacked that Jesus asked of him was a deeper understanding, 
more that's based on the heart and not the law. Okay, you've achieved all these things. You've achieved, you've, you've got wealth, you've got status, you have all these things. What are you going to do with it? And the man just didn't understand that. He needed to have a better understanding of his heart. Now, <clears throat> I want to, although a lot of different scholars and there's a lot of different opinions on what treasures in heaven means. When Jesus tells this man, you will have treasure in heaven. I believe that treasure in heaven is those people, those lives that you have touched. Because God's treasure is his people. God doesn't need gold. He doesn't need jewels. doesn't need stacks of cash. What he wants is hearts. He wants hearts. And he wants his children to be there with him. So what treasure in heaven, to me, what that has always said, is those lives that you have touched along the way. That's what you're going to see when you get to heaven. And you will be able to say, I helped them in their faith. I helped them through a rough time. I helped them find Jesus to begin with. All of these things. I think that's what it's talking about is treasure in heaven. And so if you look at it through that lens, what Jesus is teaching us is that to love and to serve one another in humility will make sure that there's no earthly treasure that could possibly compare to what will await you there. So what he's saying to this man is all of these things that you have, this wealth, this status, this property, if you use that to bring people into the kingdom, that's treasure. It's not a way to buy yourself in. Now, Jesus is not teaching poverty is the way to heaven, but that's the way this man takes it. Mark 10, 22, but he was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So this man hears that and all he thinks is, I just, I have to be poor now. Everything that I've worked for my entire life up to this point, been very successful. That's who I am. Jesus is telling him, get rid of that and just follow me. The man is probably, when it says deeply dismayed, he's probably thinking, I had stored up all of this stuff thinking that's what was going to buy my way in. And now I'm being told that's not it. That's probably why he went away grieving. See, Jesus is teaching that whatever you have in your life, whatever you have in your life, that's stopping you from taking up his cross and following, that needs to be done away with. If, it's, if your idol is your job, whether it relates to money or not, your status, your, your station in life, your whatever you have, sports, hobbies, that if you say, well, I would be more involved with Jesus. I would do more ministry. I would follow him. I would serve at the food pantry. I would serve the homeless. I would do this. I would do that. But I'm too busy with this other thing. Whatever that other thing is. He's saying it. that's a distraction. A distraction at best, an idol at worst. And if that thing becomes an idol, that you're worshiping that, pursuing that, over your pursuit of Christ. That's something to eliminate and repent of. And in this case, it's this man's wealth. Remember Matthew 6.24. If you don't remember it, I'll read it to you. Matthew says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve 
God and wealth. Some translation use the word mammon instead of wealth. And mammon is a, is a spirit. It is not that wealth is wrong. It's where's your heart? What's your plan to do with it? And does that consume everything over your relationship with Christ? That's what he's saying the danger is. And I think this man was so grieved that what he thought he had been storing up to buy his way in was not going to be enough. What he lacked above all else was the ability to put the love of God and the love of his people above his love of status and personal comfort. He, he had absolutely made an idol of his wealth. Now, he may not have agreed with this statement, but he loved it more than God. And it was clear because he walked away grieved and he was unwilling to do it. If you love God, you will love his people and be willing to serve them and nothing will stand in your way. That doesn't mean 24-7, but that means when confronted with a choice, God and his people will take precedence over those other things. Mark 10.23 says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's a rhetorical statement. It's not a, it's not a, he's not asking how hard is it going to be, because it's difficult, but it's not impossible. The key, again, lies in what you do with it. Where's your heart with the things that God has given you? If God has gifted you with a wonderful job that provides great income, what's your heart? To store up as much as I can or to get as much as I can so that I can give it out? If that's where your heart is, then that is a, that is a noble pursuit that I think God would be pleased with. It's not adding another zero. It's adding more resources that you can use in the kingdom. In other words, is this an obstacle or is it a tool? Now, we see in Scripture all the time where it's not necessarily a bad thing to be rich. A lot of people say that, and a lot of people struggle with that. I'm very wealthy. I'm doing, I'm not, but I'm doing very well, and I'm guilty about that. Wealth in itself is not something to feel guilty about. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Extremely wealthy, uh, but he was a tax collector. And so lumped in with, with sinners. He was a sinner. But he was so desperate to see Jesus, to even be near him, that he climbed up a tree. Remember that story? That's from Luke 19. Luke 19, 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I'm going, I am giving to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So it's this man's heart. He was rich. He was a sinner. He had pursued. But in that one conversation with Jesus, that one repentance of heart, if I've cheated anybody... I've given it back fourfold, and I'm giving half of everything I have. It's about that man's heart, not where you've been. It's where you are now. Remember Mary. Remember the story of Mary using some very expensive oil. Most translations say that it was nard, but using that oil to anoint Jesus, his head and his feet. <coughs> Judas was outraged by that. Remember? 
Judas, one of the disciples at this time, he hadn't betrayed Jesus yet. And he was like, what a waste. Mary's using all this expensive oil to just pour it on Jesus, pour it down the drain. And he, he says, we could sell it. Remember that? We could sell it and use the money to help the poor. Okay, he said the words. But here's what Scripture says his heart was saying. John 12, 6. Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. So he's saying to Jesus, what a waste. We could, we could sell that and give it to the poor. But what he was really saying is, more for me. Put it in that box and I'll take it. That's an instance where you can say the words, but your heart's in the wrong place. Zacchaeus lived his life in the wrong place and in one encounter with Jesus said, I'm done with that. That's the definition of repentance. Turning away from that life. Mark 10, 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus responded again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Now, again, rhetorical statement. It's not a question. That word amazed translates as speechless. Okay? They were, they were speechless, dumbfounded. Like, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Remember all the way back when we studied Job? If you don't, you can go back and, and listen to it. But the idea in that culture in that time, and it, and it was pervasive all the way through in general, all the way up until today, was that if you were wealthy, you must have God's favor. Remember that? If you were wealthy, if you owned a lot of land, if you were prosperous, that automatically meant that you had God's favor. And that was the culture that the disciples in general had grown up in. The three basic tenets of of Jewish culture when it pertains to salvation are this. Number one, repentance. Number two, good deeds. And number three, a life of devotion to God. Okay, that kind of boils down. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically it. And these guys would have been raised in that culture. Well, I need to repent. Okay, I need to repent. But I need to do good deeds and I need to be devoted to God. And then the more wealth and status you achieved through doing those things, the better you could be. They were, they were steeped in that. So it's not unlikely that they would struggle with that statement. Then Mark 10, 25, Jesus says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's been debated a lot too, and I'm not going to go deeply into that because it's not necessarily deeply theological here. But some scholars say that it's just a, a, it's just a, a metaphor. And in fact, it was. It was very common. It started in Persia where they said it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. Well, they didn't have elephants here, so they changed it to camels. So it was a very common saying. But some scholars actually say that the needle refers to a small gate in the walls of Jerusalem. And it was a small, like a very small, almost a secret opening that scouts would use to go in and out like if there was a siege. Here's a, I found a picture of it. See how... How small that is. <clears throat> now, that was commonly called the eye of a needle. And so some say, you know, a camel's not getting through there, right? So 
Just a side note for those of you who have maybe heard it taught other ways. Some, some do say that that's what it is. But it's also, again, a very common Hebrew saying. Mark 10, 26, And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? So if all these things that they had been taught since they were children could help you achieve that status, could help you achieve status and prominence and, and, and ultimately achieve salvation... If all that's not going to do it, then, then how? what chance do we have? Then who can be saved? It was so ingrained in them that they had a hard time even understanding it. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looking at them said, With people, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible <clears throat> with God. See, they were still looking at salvation just like the rich young man through the eyes of what they thought they needed to do, what they could do, what they could achieve, how much they could serve. And just like going back to the children, Jesus says, you need to be like a child. You need to set aside what you can do and what you can gain and what you can earn and what your status is and your pride and your wealth and all these things that the whole world relies on. Set that aside and just come to me. That's what he means. And that's why these two sections tie together so nicely. We need to set aside thinking that we can earn or do or somehow learn enough or take enough Bible studies to earn our way in. If we do those things, it should be out of a passionate desire to know more about our Lord and Savior, to be able to get more resources that we can use to serve and to glorify God. That's the point of all of this. And so... I thought this, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to obtain salvation on its own, I'm really glad that the size of a needle is not dependent on us. God's got giant needles. And it's big enough for all of us. If your heart's right. If your heart's right. Now Peter blurts out, Peter, to finish up this section, Peter blurts out what they were all thinking. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything to follow you. Here's Peter again saying, well, we've done, we've done all that. Now, he didn't. He wasn't willing to, but we did. We set aside everything to follow you. And Jesus responds with this. Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along, along with persecutions. How'd you like to be hearing that? I'm going to receive all these things. Oh, and persecutions too. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now this is, this is some hyperbole. Jesus is not saying that they're all going to become real estate moguls with with hundreds and hundreds of siblings and family. I don't know if they would even want that. He's not saying this. What he's saying, though, is that following Christ brings with it a favor and a peace and a blessing that is far beyond the material. That all those material things that you think, being a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, brings with it much more valuable things. Things like, the forgiveness of sin, 
things like peace in your spirit, things like favor of God, like an advocate against the accusations of Satan, things like hundreds and thousands of spiritual brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Things like the deposit of the Holy Spirit and with it, all the fruits of the Spirit that come with that. How about eternal life? What price can you place on those things? Can you earn those things? You can't. It's by faith in Christ alone. So there's nothing we can pursue that will earn us those things and there's no price that we can pay to achieve those things. They are beyond value. But Jesus tells them flat out, and there's no ambiguity, the cost is going to be persecution. Mark 10.31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Remember, it hasn't been very long since Jesus chastised them for arguing back and forth about which one of us is the greatest. Remember that? They continue to do that over and over again. Keep that in mind when next week we talk about the sons of thunder who are jockeying for position next to the throne. They don't, they just don't get it. And why, why do the disciples and more generally just human beings have such difficulty in grasping the idea that wealth and status are not something that we necessarily should be striving for? If they're a tool to use, yes. But we should not be striving for that And I think the reason is because that's just not the way of the world. That's never been the way of the world. It's the way of disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is so opposite of what the world will tell you. Since the beginning of time, it has been more land, more wealth, more cattle, more sheep, more money, more bigger families, bigger house. That's the way it has been. And it has caused us, in general, to chase for something that is not life-giving. It can be used to give life, but in itself, it is not life-giving. And that's how the kingdom works, though. And that's why it's different than any other kingdom that has ever been and ever will be. Those things we've been taught that would gain us comfort, a good life, everything that we're taught we should want, do not always line up with the teachings of Jesus. And that's why it can be hard. First John Chapter 2, 15 through 17. You can write it down and read it later if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. 1 John 2, 15, 17. Do not love the world, nor the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. That's the reward. So how do we do the will of God and be confident that we're on the right track? How do we do that? How do we know the difference between I'm, I'm working long hours, I've built, I've built a good business, or I've built some status for myself, or I've built some, some security in my income? How do we know if that's for the Father or, for, or just for us to satisfy our flesh? How can we know that? Paul teaches that in Romans, Romans 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted each a measure of faith. Right after that, Paul launches into his whole teaching on unity and service in the body of Christ. So test the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the renewing of your mind, the Holy Spirit will tell you. What he's saying is, Pastor Bob doesn't have the answers, but the Holy Spirit does. And if you seek the Holy Spirit in your situation for your life, he will then guide you in the direction that gives life. And that's just up to you. But Paul goes on to teach that to be a part of the body of Christ is to serve the body of Christ, to love the body of Christ, to maintain unity in the body of Christ. That's all of us, by the way. To participate in the body of Christ and understand that all that you are and all that you have, all that you ever will be, all that you will ever have is to be used in the service of God and the body of Christ. That's what it's for. So if you want to gain the kingdom of heaven, do these two things. Write this down. I boiled it down to this. Serve one another. Love one another. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that you you make a way for us. No matter where our flesh takes us, no matter where our, our path leads, you are always there for redemption. You are always there to guide us onto the path that gives life. And so, Lord, if there are things we have been pursuing in our lives, things that we have elevated to idols in our lives, Lord, show us those things. Show us those things we have placed above our relationship with you, that we have placed above taking our place in the body of Christ in service, in humble service. Show us those things, Lord, and then we will repent of those things. Lord, I repent of those things I have placed above my service to you. I want to set those aside and I want to pursue you with my entire heart. Help me to not come to you with an agenda. Help me to set aside the the idea that because I have done this, somehow I am more deserving of your grace and your mercy. Lord, you give that freely. We can't earn it. So I thank you from my heart, from everything that I am, I thank you that you have grace and mercy on me. And I just pray that you lead me on the path to your righteousness and your eternal life. That's what I want, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here, we're going to go ahead and take communion together now. And if you need to sit in your seat and just pray about those things a little bit more. Any part of the message or the challenge at the end, do that. Take all the time that you need and then, and then come and celebrate communion. Whether it's up front here, Gabe and I will be serving up front or we have the self-serve at the crosses. When we take communion together, we are saying yes to what Jesus did for us. We are saying thank you with grateful hearts for what Jesus did for us but not just dying on the cross. 
that through his death and through his resurrection, we are reconciled and we have a new chance every single day. No matter where our path took us, if we took a left when we should have taken a right, wherever it is, Scripture tells us he's there with us. And if you just turn around, he's there. The word repent literally means to turn away from or to turn around. Maybe that's what we need to do because when we do that, he's standing right there with open arms. No choice is too bad for him to reconcile. No sin in your heart is too bad to repent of. And he's there. It's never too late. The enemy might tell you it is, but it never is through Jesus every day. Every moment is a chance to let his blood wash over you. That's what we celebrate through communion. So if you need to pray, do that. We have a prayer team in the back. Look for a lanyard. We have a great, great group of prayer warriors back there who will pray with you. So take advantage of that. And then after you take communion, listen to some worship, and then let's be the body and just go out, enjoy some food together, enjoy some nice weather, and just enjoy each other's company and love and support one another. Amen? Thank you, guys.